thinking about the hymns that we sing, the gospel songs, and the stories behind them, the scriptures related to them, and we're going to continue doing that again tonight. As always, those of you that are farther back, we invite you to move forward. The first week, everyone took me up on that offer, and every week since, it has gotten less and less and less, but it really makes a difference in our singing. If you are brave and willing, please feel free to move forward, and otherwise, we'll proceed as usual, okay? Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, once again, we thank you that every good and perfect gift comes from your hand. Help us to realize more and more that that is the case, whether we Always remember to acknowledge it or not. We give you thanks for all of the blessings that you send our way. Tonight, Father, we ask that you focus our minds and our hearts as we sing and think about the way that we sing our praises to you. Help us to learn things that we can apply to make us stronger in this area of our worship to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We've been working on a song week after week, called He is Exalted. I would like us to start with this one tonight just as a refresher. Mm, Bass, tenor, alto, soprano. He is exalted, the King is exalted on high. I will praise Him. He is exalted forever, exalted, and I will but a little later on tonight we're going to look at the next one that comes in that, in that group or fits into that medley. Last week after we finished, Brother Larry Bill said, I want to say something next week to the basses about this song. You remember what it is? I do. Put the first slide back up. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. What I wanted to say is not just applying to the basses, but it seems to be affecting basses more than anything else, is that we are... We're becoming a culture of people who do not know how to read. Sure. And so, uh, especially basses who are very accustomed to singing lines that go da 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 da. Sometimes when that when the bottom note is not da, they don't know where to go, and that's the case in this one. 
da 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 they do not know where to go down there and so that line is muddy and I'm not saying this to fault the basis it's just that we've gotten away from learning how to read so that if something is not familiar and ingrained in us after years and years of singing it it's the bass line that suffers the worst because not to brag but more of the tenors are musicians enough uh, they have to be musicians more to read and somehow another ladies just somehow learn to sing alto those that are in that vocal range so anyway I've gotten off my soapbox now <laughs> alright so let's get the key and just make the point that let's see Mm, so there's the bass first note. He's saying that typically you guys are used to going, He is exalted the King. That's a common note you go to. But he's making the point that you go lower here. He is exalted the King. Everybody beginning ready. Actually, let's hear the basses. Ready, go. He is exalted the King is exalted on high. I will praise him. He is exalted forever, exalted, and I will praise his name. Everybody, just that much of it, okay? From the beginning, and he is exalted, the king is exalted on high. I will praise him, he is exalted forever, exalted, and I will praise his name. Let's go ahead, and he is the Lord, forever his truth shall reign, heaven and earth. Rejoice in His holy name. He is exalted. The King is exalted on high. He is exalted. The King is exalted on high. Let me tell you about a lady named Eliza Hewitt. She was born in 1851 into a Christian family. They even lived on Christian Street in Philadelphia. Little Eliza grew up in the nurture of the Lord. She was a teenager during the Civil War, but she managed to concentrate on school well enough to graduate valedictorian of her class. She displayed an unusual love for children, and after further study, she became a school teacher. In 1887, while she was teaching at the Northern Home for Friendless Children, Eliza, who was 35 at the time, was struck by an unruly student. He slammed his slate against her. That was like their blackboard, wasn't it? Chalkboard back then. He slammed his slate against her, severely injuring her back. The doctor placed her in a heavy cast for six months, and Eliza was virtually immobile, perhaps wondering if she would ever walk again. When the cast was removed in early 1887, the doctor told her to take a short walk in nearby Fairmont Park. It was a warm spring day, and she was overcome with joy. Returning home, she picked up her pen and immediately wrote the hymn, There's sunshine in my soul today, more glorious and bright than glows in any earthly sky, for Jesus is my light. Her injuries were severe enough to preclude school teaching from that day forward, so she devoted herself to Bible study and hymn writing. Eliza lived many more years and wrote scores of hymns, in addition to, there is sunshine in my soul today. Also, my faith has found a resting place. It's a beautiful hymn. When we all get to heaven 
and will there be any stars in my crown? She died in 1920, and her grave at Woodlawn Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, simply reads, Eliza Edmonds Hewitt, hymn writer, author of Sunshine in My Soul. Let's sing this together. Mm, soprano, bass, tenor, alto. There is sunshine in my soul today, more glorious and bright than glows in any earthly sky. For Jesus is my light. Oh, there's sunshine, blessed sunshine, while the peaceful, happy moments roll. Jesus shows his smiling face, there is sunshine in my your feedback about the topic of how many verses should we sing, I'd like to spend a few minutes asking you another question tonight. And that is, what do you do, let me advance the screen, how do you keep familiar songs, is this, you think I'm doing something? I bet I am, I bet I'm accidentally pressing, there you go, blame it on me, I apologize, but it was good entertainment, right? How do you keep familiar songs, like the one we just sang, how do you keep that fresh with meaning? There's no way, I mean, we, you know, we don't need to be singing new songs constantly. I mean, part of the joy is, is the heritage that we come from. But how do you keep your mind focused on the words that we're singing? 
Because that's what, where the praise comes in. Who has an idea? I just want to quote you. We've got to keep our mind focused on it. And you have to work at that. You have to think that in your mind. I'm going to think of the words of this song. Sometimes I look at the words and close my eyes to sing them, and it helps me to focus on the words. Wonderful, wonderful points. Who else? Sometimes you can't take up the whole worship with the story behind every song, but you know, if occasionally we hear the story about why someone wrote the song uh, and singing all the verses, but but yeah, most of it is it's just internal. It's intrinsic, you know, just trying to do what Paul said to do and, you know, sing with your heart and pay attention to the words. I remember my youth minister saying, pay attention to the words. So it's not always easy, but. Am I the only one that finds myself, I mean, being guilty of this at times? You know, you, we're, we're so familiar with some of these songs that it's just easy to go on autopilot almost. Who else has a thought? I know you can, but the people watching online are the ones who can't hear. So, well, you know, the my my thought is uh, it's it's easier here than other places that that we've been. We we left a church in Central Missouri that meant the world to us, but it was a very small place. On a on a good Sunday, we had maybe thirty thirty five people, you know, making up the worship, and I, I think there were probably ten or fifteen songs that we regularly sang because those were the ones that that congregation was able to sing. So it got very repetitive, and I, you know, like other people have hinted at, I think we just had to go in recognizing and being in an attitude that we were there to worship. We weren't, we weren't there necessarily. Like first and foremost, priority was was not for us to be excited about it because of the way the singing sounded to us. It was to be excited about it because we were worshiping God in song. Um, but I, I don't suffer that problem here. Never have. I guess coming from where you've come from, it makes you appreciate the greater variety, huh? Who else? These are so good. All right? If you don't mind, I'll get his on the way, and then I'll come to you, okay? I think uh, the song leader's making a, a sincere effort to pick songs that match the theme of the lesson. It ties it all together and creates a, a much more enhanced meaning to the songs by knowing that they are tied to the meaning of the lesson that we're going to have. And I've often wondered if it's important to make that comment at the outset of a service that all of the songs today are around this theme rather than hoping that, you know, the people singing will just put that together. Yeah. Two, okay. I I was going to say that lately we've had several people read songs in association with other things, and I think that helps keep the meanings fresh because you're not distracted by you're actually singing and focusing on making the right notes. So reading a song as a, as a difference kind of refreshes the songs for you. Absolutely. Two things. One, um, for me, for example, on the Lord's Supper, uh, it helps me to envision. And a lot of the songs that we lead, it, it disturbs me when we say the well, in preparation for the Lord's Supper, let's sing so-and-so, because the Lord's Supper is an identity of itself, and singing is an identity of itself. So, But still, um, envisioning Christ 
in shedding his blood, for example. Uh, and other, other songs treated the same way, 10,000 angels. Uh, the second thing is placing myself in that song and making it my song. Um, and sometimes a person may ask, okay, we're singing, I am resolved no longer to linger, you know, and so am I, and yes, I am. You know, I'm, I'm still a sinner, and I'm resolved no longer to linger. Another song like that, and it helps us if we admit who we are in placing ourselves in those songs. Anyone else? Joy. May give you the last word, all right? Well, I mean, it, it, it's important that the songs have meaning for us, but, you know, we have heard a lot from our, some in our brethren saying, well, I'm not getting out of worship what I need to. It's not meaningful for me. Well, it's not about us. It's about God. So if we love God and we want to praise him the way he wants to be, that's the meaning. Thank you all very much. By the way, if you have an idea for a topic, I've got a few more listed, but I'd love to hear some input from you if there's something you would like us to discuss about our singing or anything pertaining to this class for that matter. We're about to have a chance to practice singing a familiar song and focusing on the words. It's written by Annie Sherwood. She had dabbled in poetry. She wrote her first verse and published it when she was just 14. In 1857, she married Charles Hawkes, and they established their home in Brooklyn, where Dr. Robert Lowry was the preacher at Hanson Place Baptist Church. At Lowry's encouragement, Annie began writing Sunday school songs for children, and he, Lowry, set many of them to music. I Need Thee Every Hour was written on a bright June morning in 1872, when Annie was 36 years old. She later wrote... And quote, one day as a young wife and mother of 37 years, age, years of age, that's interesting. The source said 36, but she says I was 37. We'll trust her. One day as a young wife and mother of 37 years of age, I was busy with my regular household tasks. Suddenly I became so filled with the sense of nearness to the master that wondering how one could live without him, either in joy or pain, these words... I need thee every hour, were ushered into my mind, the thought at once taking full possession of me. The next Sunday, Annie handed these words to Dr. Lowry, who wrote the tune and added the chorus while seated at the little organ in the living room of his Brooklyn parsonage. Later that year, it was sung for the first time at the National Baptist Sunday School Association meeting in Cincinnati, Ohio, and published in a hymn book the following year. When Annie's husband died 16 years later, she found that her own hymn was among her greatest comforts. She said, I did not understand at first why this hymn had touched the great throbbing heart of humanity. It was not until long after when the shadow fell over my way, the shadow of a great loss, that I understood something of the comforting power in the words which I had been permitted to give out to others in my hour of sweet serenity and peace. Sometime after her husband Charles's death, Annie moved to Bennington, Vermont to live with her daughter and son-in-law. 
All in all, she wrote over 400 hymns during her 83 years, but only this one is still widely sung. She is buried in Hoosick Cemetery in Hoosick, New York. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Does anybody know Hoosick? That's it? Okay. Her tombstone says, Mrs. Hawks was author of the hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. So let's sing it together. Face, tenor, alto, soprano. I need the every taking a breath after. Uh, and when shall come the hour of my departure for worlds unknown, O Lord? 
Be with, putting that break there, change the meaning. We'll have a similar experience with this one. I worshiped somewhere one Sunday morning that they held on to the O. We've done it here a time or two, completely, at least to me, changed. And I, I thought, oh, because it adds more emphasis. Would you sing just the chorus with me? Maybe, Justin, if we can go back to that slide. And let's just hold on to it. It is not written to be sung this way. And I wouldn't want to do it every time, certainly. But I think maybe you'll have the same experience. It can make some additional meaning for this. So let's sing just the chorus. And we're going to hold the word O, oh, the first O oh there, until I give you the sign to go on, okay? I need the wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. And one more, we need the Lord in times of weakness. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 29 says he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. That is in no way an exhaustive list. And so we can say in the conclusion we need the Lord all the time at every hour of every day. The second song that goes in that medley with I Exalt Thee is called, it's called, is that the name of the other one? I Exalt Thee? He is exalted. All right. So this one is called I Exalt Thee. And it's in the key of F.
notice there's also a soprano part right here. But some of the sopranos that want to, we need people doing both parts. So you've got I exalt thee, I exalt thee, I exalt thee, O Lord. We need some of you singing that, and we need others to do that echo. I exalt thee, as you've heard. Let's go back now and do this one again. Sir. exalted the king. Oh, how does it end? Praise him. He is exalted forever exalted and I will praise his name. He is the Lord forever his truth shall reign. Heaven and earth rejoice in his holy name. He is exalted. The king is exalted on high. Then the last part. He is exalted. The king is exalted on high. Now you can imagine how it would go. For thou O Lord sang key in everything. Let's do some music fundamentals. We'll come back to that another time. Is Brother Pierce Flat here? He had a comment at the end of class last week that was good, and I had made a note to ask him to share it, but we'll hope to do that another time. All right. These two things are called musical staffs, or when they're plural, we say staves. They're the five lines and four spaces on which music is written, and you're looking at two staves up there now. That top stave, we, we use two staves when we sing hymns, because we have to have a stave for the ladies, and they sing that top staff. We have to have a stave for the men, or a staff for the men who sing the bottom. We call the symbol at the beginning of the ladies' staff the what clef? Treble clef. Higher notes, ladies' parts. We call this one the? The bass clef. Notes are either always going to be written on the line, where the line runs through the middle of them, or in the spaces. That's the only two places that lines can be. It's true in the treble and bass clef. And as lines go up on the page, as these are doing here, so does the sound. E, G, B, D, F, like that. All notes have letter names. 
but the letter names for notes are only one of the first seven letters of the reading alphabet. There's no such thing as a note H or a note J. Last week, we learned the notes in the treble clef, the ladies' parts. And we said, you'll think of that as the people clef that can help you keep straight the acronyms to know the names of the notes. The space notes spell face from the bottom to the top. So when you see a note in that very bottom space, that's an F, an A, a C, an E. Space rhymes with face. That can help you ladies remember that. If they're, they're line notes, it's every good boy does fine. E, G, B, D, F. And then, notice if they go up, as we said, the sound goes up and coming down, the sound goes down. Would you name these notes out loud as I point? F, C, E, C, A, F. Now the lines. E, G, B, D, F, D, B, G, E. Now, if you've never done that, it's understandable. That's tricky. Going up is one thing, coming down is another. But you're wanting to think about up here, face, F-A-C-E. And then just in reverse, coming down, every good boy does fine. Notice when we write them in order, they move from line to space to line to space to line to space, line, space, line. And they create the pattern of the music alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F. And it would just keep going if we kept going up here. G, A, B. And it just repeats. We're picking up in the middle of the music alphabet on that first line there. Last week, we also practiced identifying the soprano and alto names of the notes. I'll point to just a few at random. What is that alto note called? E. It's sitting on that first line. What about that soprano note? C, it's in the third space, F-A-C. What about that soprano note? D, every good boy does. What about that alto note? F. Now that's the treble clef, the ladies' parts. And I promised that we would now introduce the bass clef, the men's parts. I'd never thought about it until last week, and Raymond Kill said, said what do you mean we're going to be the animal clef? Well, some of you have learned probably another sentence right here that's very similar to the treble clef sentence. That's the reason I like this method better. You can keep it straight. So the acronyms, if, if it's spaces, all cows eat grass. And great big dogs fight animals. There you go. Now, I, I know there are several versions of this. This is just the one that I have found to be easiest. So once again, say it with me. All cows eat grass and great big dogs fight animals. Let's practice identifying these as if they are in the bass clef. A, C, E, G. All cows eat grass. Come back down. E for eat. C for cows. A for all. And then the line notes. Great big dogs fight animals. Here we go. G, B, D, F. A, F, D, B, G. And similarly, when you write the notes in the bass clef in order, starting with the note on the bottom line and going all the way up, do you see how it creates the alphabet again? Now, 
Let's identify a few of the bass and tenor notes. So there's a bass note in the second space from the bottom, so it is a C. The fourth space from the bottom, the tenor note is a G. And over here, that is also a C. And this one I'm about to explain what it's called. It's sitting on a line above the staff. So let's fast forward to this slide. I know this is technical stuff and we're just about done for tonight. But when you write all of the notes in order from the bottom line on the bass clef all the way up to the top line of the treble clef, you have to involve one invisible line that sits between the two staves. You never see that line fully written out. You just see it occasionally written out to write that one note on it, which is the same as that note. We just spread the staves far apart to put words in there and to make it easier to read. In reality, they're not this far apart. They're just far enough apart for that one line to run between that is the same distance as the other lines are apart. And that, friends, we call middle C. Now you know why it's called middle C. It's in the middle of the two staves. Okay. Have we got time to do this? We, we get out at uh, 7.15, is it? Let's try. Every week I like to uh, introduce you to a song leader within the Churches of Christ. And this name is probably one that's familiar to you. Albert Brumley. He lived from 1905 to 1977. He was born on a cotton farm near Spiro, Oklahoma. Is that correct, Spiro? On October 29th, 1905, he spent much of his early life chopping and picking cotton on his family's farm. He developed an interest in music in his childhood days and began his study of music in singing schools in 1922. Just four years later, when he was 21, he enrolled in the Hartford Musical Institute of Hartford, Arkansas. He also began teaching singing schools in Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Missouri during that time. It was at one of these singing schools in Powell, Missouri, that he met his future wife, Goldie Shell. They lived on the banks of Big Sugar Creek in Powell, Missouri, where they raised six children. His songwriting began in 1931 with the very popular I'll Fly Away. He wrote more than 600 songs, including I'll Meet You in the Morning, Turn Your Radio On, you remember that? Jesus Hold My Hand, The Blood That Stained the Old Rugged Cross, Sometimes It's Hard to Understand, and If We Never Meet Again. He was one of the first inductees into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. And two years later, he was inducted into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. In 1998, he was inducted into the Oklahoma Music Hall of Fame. His songs have been translated into foreign languages and even into Braille. They have also been recorded by such legendary performers as Elvis Presley, Roy Acuff, Red Foley, Johnny Cash, Jim Reeves, Charlie Pride, George Jones, and many other singers and quartets. He was regarded as a musical genius, a man of strong religious convictions, and a very sentimental person of great foresight. He died at his home in Powell, Missouri on November 15, 1977. He was 72 years old, and he is buried at Fox Church of Christ Cemetery near Powell, Missouri. The first refrain of his song, I'll Meet You in the Morning, is engraved on his tombstone. Can you see it? I will meet you in the morning. That's the notation that's there in all four parts. And I think what we'll do, for time's sake and because I want us not to have to rush through it, 
is when we reconvene next class, we'll start by singing, If We Never Meet Again, that is one of his songs. We will not meet as a group this way next Wednesday night because it's a singing night. So we'll be singing together as a congregation. But week after next, we'll pick back up where we left off, okay? Thank you again for being here. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, once again, we're so thankful to you for the great men and women that have written songs through the years that have blessed our lives and continue to enrich us so. And Father, we pray that you will raise up more and more people to be following in their footsteps, perhaps even some in this very gathering tonight. We thank you for your love and that nothing can separate us from it. Strengthen us more and more that we may walk closer to you every day and our light may shine more and more brightly. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.